shocked when it wasn't. Um, remember those chains of straw, those chains that are brittle, perhaps, of straw in um, Julian and Madelow. That's what Julian says to Madelow about how it is that religion and custom and tyranny keep um, people docile to power. And he says that if they only tried their chains, they might find that they were brittle, perhaps as straw. Um, so, you thought you were, you thought the door was locked on your prison, the prison that kept you from this class. But all you had to do was push it open, and there it was, and now you're free. Free. <laughs> what kind of look is that? <laughs> My God. <laughs> My God, do you feel that this is a prison? That's so sad. No, no, I said this was freedom. I said by pushing open the door, you could come into this, 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 this arena of freedom. Of, of. Oh, you guys, you need to learn to fake. If you fake, you'll you will eventually see that it actually is freedom. It's poetry. I mean, that's where freedom is for human beings. There's nothing else. The rest of it is slavery. Really, you're going to graduate and enslave yourselves. Are you you're going to be a poet when you grow? Good. Yeah. Nice. Nice use of the phrase "free path" too. Uh, the line from um, Mutability: "The path of its departure still is free." I know you were. I can tell. <laughs> I can see the sort of the M for mutability just lighting up in your eyes, um, the way the M for monarchy lights up in Dante's heaven. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you guys looking forward to the slavery of vacation then? Are you? Are people going home? Uh, well, <laughs> home is three miles away. Right on Walden Pond, um, or no? What pond? White. White Pond. Yeah. Okay. Um, how many people are going far away? So where's far away? Florida. Florida. Well, three under under three hours. Under three hours. Yeah. Okay. If you fly like the Skylark. Um, <laughs> and Marilyn, you told me, but I forgot. Uh, Michigan. Michigan. That's right. Um, you're not going home. No. So <laughs> <Still> far. <laughs> yeah. But but everyone else is but no no yeah. no one else you're not you're staying here okay well I'm going to New York uh huh okay that's that's a measure of freedom too <laughs> um yeah as Dr Johnson said about London he who is tired of London is tired of life and you can say the same thing about New York um, anyone tired of New York is tired of life um or as Kid Creole and the Coconuts once put it. Um, believe me, I know, when you leave New York, you go nowhere. Um, all right, so how's Prometheus Unbound going, speaking of going? It's the best I could do. <laughs> it's the best I could do. Given the fact that I was using words, I will use my words to ask you, how is Prometheus Unbound going? That was a question. It's going, okay. Um, 
How far are we? We all finished Act Two. Um, you have to reread it. Okay. Have you reread Act One yet? Yes. Has everyone reread Act One? <laughs> okay. Good. See, you are learning. Um, did you want to say something, or you were just just following? Okay. Um, so what we looked at um, on Tuesday was just Prometheus's first speech. And um, part of what we were talking about is how after that speech, um, how that speech gets things to be happening. Um, and then the question is, really the question of Prometheus Unbound um, is what exactly happens and what are the results of what happens. Um, so what happens is that Prometheus, um, remember we talked about exposition, that Prometheus is trying to remember the curse that he laid upon Jupiter um, 3,000 years earlier. Um, and he can't remember it. And the fact that he's trying and that he can't is actually um, the makes exposition possible, but it's also the beginning of the end of the situation in which he finds himself. So that um, what we get is, I mean, well, let me ask this as a question. Um, how, I know it's odd to talk about plot summarizing Prometheus Unbound, but there is a plot. Um, it's not um, 24. It doesn't have lots of twists and turns, and it doesn't turn out that all the people you trusted and you shouldn't have trusted and vice versa. Um, there isn't a Snape character whose goodness or evil we don't find out for sure until the very end. Um, but there's a Voldemort character, Jupiter. Um, so, but there is a plot. Um, so what is the plot of Act One? Act One is only one scene long, remember. Um, so what happens there? You can give the the one line version of the plot. Aristotle says that the greatest dramas are the ones that fill you with um, horror even in a single sentence. And his example is um, Oedipus. That is that a one line summary of Oedipus is sufficient um, to fill with horror someone who doesn't know that story. Um, and uh, that's, Aristotle says, what the best plots are. Um, but then there are plots with, which are very, very devious and where um, you really need a whole lot of time to explain what happens. Give the plot summary of Act One in whatever, however um, cursorily or in whatever detail you want. Or, you know, look interested in what other people are going to say. You guys have at least learned that look in your years at Brandeis. Act one, what happens? Tony, yes, good. Everyone is interested. In, I, they all look so interested in what you're about to say. Go for it. Sort of the background. We find out that Prometheus is being, being tortured and why he's being tortured. And I think in Act one, you find out about some of the secondary characters like uh, Asia and uh, Panthea. Mm -hmm. What does Panthea's name mean? What word that we use comes from, is her name a kind of back formation of? Yeah. Um, pan all the uh, gods. Yeah, 
So do people know the the term pantheism? What does it mean, Mariel? It's like everything is... Is it? Oh, I was thinking something else. Sorry. No, you were about to say it. That like everything is God? Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that everything is God. Um, it's Spinoza's idea. He's the, he is, in philosophy, um, the great modern pantheist is Spinoza, who believes everything is God and God is everything. Um, that's not an easy thought in Spinoza. It's not, it can sound easy, but it isn't. Um, Einstein was a pantheist. Um, Einstein thought that the reason the universe made sense was that what God was was the sense that the universe made. Um, so Panthea is um, a figure who must represent some idea of pantheism, some idea that um, there could be, I mean, she's not, none of Prometheus's friends are very happy when the poem starts, but um, she stands for some kind of possibility of pantheism, some kind of possibility, then you would say, of universal love. Um, and universal love would be the opposite of the situation that um, the poem starts with. Okay, so that's, that's the background. That's, the, that's something like the setup. Prometheus um, knows the secret, and Prometheus has given um, something to mortal creatures, to humans, to mortal intelligences that Jupiter didn't want us to have. Um, and he's trying to remember the curse he laid upon Jupiter. Then what happens? Characters come in and out. Who comes in besides Panthea and Ione? Okay, Asia comes in in Act Two. We hear a little bit about her, but we don't see her till Act Two. Yeah. All right, Mercury comes in. Um, who's Mercury? Anyone? Anyone else? Messenger of, yeah, in Greek mythology, what's his name? Hermes. Yeah, um, Mercury or Hermes, messenger, the herald of the gods, that's mythologically what his um, position is, um, and um, he's all over the Iliad and to some extent the Odyssey, he's the herald of the gods. He comes as a herald of Jupiter um, to say what? How recently have we reread this? Okay, note to self, lots of Prometheus Unbound, lots of Prometheus Unbound on the final. Yeah? Uh, that Jupiter is a, sort of a new plan for Prometheus. Yeah, and what is that plan? Um, that, that is... Well, basically, it's the new plan, meet the new plan, same as the old plan, yeah. which is torture him even more, really torture him, really make things miserable for him, um, because he really needs to know. Jupiter really needs to know what's going on. Um, how does that work to give us a sense that something actually is going on?
there's, there's a new urgency here in Jupiter. I mean, I think that's, that's essentially what you're, what you're um, responding to. Um, there's a new urgency in Jupiter's um, uh, desperation to find out what it is that Prometheus knows. Um, and so that new urgency, again, is dramatically um, makes us feel that, yeah, this isn't just backstory, but the fact that backstory is becoming important, it's not only something becoming important for us as readers, and this really is for reading. This is, I mean, you know, this would actually be great for a certain kind of visionary movie, but doing it as a play is not going to work. Doing it on stage is going to be really hard. Um, not impossible, as I say, people have done it on stage, but really hard. Um, but it's not simply, oh yeah, we're finding out the way things have been for 3,000 years and God knows how much longer they'll be that way. Um, we're finding out that exposition is mattering because people are feeling a new urgency in trying to figure out the situation that they're in and how to get out of it. Um, so we're, so um, they're talking about it because they feel that something is happening. And it's not only Prometheus <coughs> who feels that something is happening. Um, but it's Jupiter does as well. Um, so he sends um, Hermes, or Mercury rather, um, to warn Prometheus um, that he'd better talk now, um, that he, Jupiter, has ways of making Prometheus talk. Um, how does Mercury feel about this? He's perfectly fine relating the message. You think so? Well, let's look. Let's go to the tapes. Um, this is... Um, go to... Um, again, I don't have the same page numbers as you, but this is line... Um, let's say that um, he enters at around line 325, um, Act 1, line three, um, 325. Um, or even earlier, Ioni um, says at line 316, but see where through the azure chasm of yon forked and snowy hill, trampling the slant winds on high with golden-sandaled feet that glow under plumes of purple dye like rose-ensanguined ivory. A shape comes now, stretching on high from his right hand a serpent-cinctured wand. Um, so she, basically she's saying, oh look, see that figure coming there. His feet are sandaled with sandals of gold, they glow under plumes of purple dye. That is that um, his, as you know, the Mercury's um, sandals are winged, or winged. Um, so plumes there means feathers, and so he has purple feathers on his sandals. Shelley is an intensely, unparalleledly visual poet, and it's worth visualizing. What he's always doing is trying to get you to visualize things. It's really hard to read Shelley without visualizing stuff, but it's worth making the intense effort that it takes to visualize everything he wants you to visualize. 
um, what Ione says is see. And when you read Shelley, that's the imperative that you should always follow is see what he's, what he's asking you to visualize in his poems. Um, you will see that imperative over and over again in his poems, see. Um, so see that, see how a shape comes now with golden sandaled <coughs> feet, um, with plumes of purple dye, purple feathers, like rose ensanguined ivory, like ivory that has been bloodied um, with the blood of the rose. Um, so a, a complex and highly condensed image. A shape now comes stretching on high from his right hand, a serpent cinctured wand. What does cinctured mean? Belted. Um, a cincture is a belt. Um, so a wand belted by a serpent, which is Mercury's staff. Um, it's uh, what you sometimes see as a medical um, emblem. Um, a wand with two serpents around it. Um, Pantheia tells us who this is. Tis Jove's world-wandering herald Mercury. And then Ione says, and who are those with hydra tresses and iron wings that climb the wind whom the frowning god represses like vapors streaming up behind, clanging loud an endless crowd. So who's following him with snake, snaky locks instead of hair um, behind Mercury. Hydra tresses because the hydra is what? Anyone know? Yeah? It's the creature with nine heads that you talk about to go back. Yeah, so a many-headed monster that you can't kill by cutting off their head, its head, because more heads grow back. Um, the line in... Henry IV, part one, whenever the Douglas um, kills someone who he thinks is Henry IV, because there are lots of people dressed up as the king so that the enemy won't know which the real king is. He sees the king, and he says, another king, they grow like Hydra's heads. That is, everywhere he goes, he sees another Henry IV. Another king, they grow like Hydra's heads. So here, the Hydra-headed tresses the hydra tresses means that the hair is heads on these creatures. But the frowning god represses them, keeps them back. Um, like vapors streaming up behind, clanging loud an endless crowd, Panthea tells us they are Jove's tempest-walking hounds, whom he gluts with groans and blood. When charioted on sulfurous cloud, he bursts heaven's bounds. So these are the dogs of Jove, of Jupiter, and he feeds them groans and blood. Whose groans and blood? Ours. Humanity's groans and bloods. Um, they come charioted on sulfurous cloud when he bursts heaven's bounds, when he um, opens the bounds of heaven and lets them um, out as from a kennel. Are they now led from the thin dead? on new pangs to be fed, says Ione. So if they've been glutting themselves on those who have died, and now they're hungry and they're looking for new people to feed upon, on Panthea, the Titan looks as ever firm, not proud. Who's the Titan? Someone else? 
Who? Jupiter? No. Jupiter is a god, not a titan. Prometheus. So they don't see Jupiter at this point. So the titans, so here these furies are coming. Now we're asked to see um, how Prometheus is responding. And he looks firm, but not proud, which is, um, Panthea says, the way he always looks. That's the right way to look. Ha, says the first fury, I sent life. Let me but look into his eyes, says the second. They're looking for living beings to gorge themselves upon. The hope of torturing him smells like a heap of corpses to a death bird after battle. So how does a heap of corpses smell to a death bird after battle? Delicious, exactly. Um, so the Furies are like vultures looking to torture Prometheus. The first Fury then says to Mercury, Darest thou delay, O herald? Why are you taking so long? Darest thou delay, O herald? Take cheer, hounds of hell. What if the son of Maya soon should make us food and sport? Who can please long the omnipotent? Um, so... Um, it may be that Mercury will tell against us, will turn against us. The son of Maya is Mercury. Um, but because no one can please the omnipotent long. Um, Mercury responds back to your towers of iron and gnash beside the streams of fire and wail your foodless teeth. Geryon, arise, and Gorgon, Chimera, and thou sphinx, subtlest of fiends who minister to Thebes, heaven's poisoned wine, unnatural love and more unnatural hate. These shall perform your task. Um, so go back to those, to those places. Go back to the stream of fire. Wail. Um, what will perform the task that you're supposed to perform is unnatural love and more unnatural hate. Um, the first fury says to Mercury, Oh, mercy, mercy, we die with our desire. So we're desperate to torture him. Drive us not back. And Mercury says, crouch then in silence. So, he, so the Furies want to rip, and we'll try again, want to rip Prometheus apart. But Mercury tells him to stop. He then turns to Prometheus and says, awful sufferer, to thee unwilling, most unwillingly, I come by the great father's will driven down to execute a doom of new revenge. Alas, I pity thee and hate myself that I can do no more. I, from thy sight returning for a season, heaven seems hell. So thy worn form pursues me night and day, smiling reproach. So that is what your warm form does in pursuing me is it um, smiles its reproach for what I'm doing. You smile at me in reproach for what I'm doing. Wise art thou, firm and good, but vainly wouldst thou stand alone in strife against the omnipotent as yon clear lamps that measure and divide the weary years from which there is no refuge, long have taught and long must teach. Even now thy torture arms with a strange might of unimagined pains the powers who scheme slow agonies in hell, and my commission is to lead them here. Or what more subtle foul or savage fiends people the abyss and leave them to their task. Be it not so. 
in that exposition. There is a secret known to thee and to none else of living things which may transfer the scepter of wide heaven, the fear of which perplexes the supreme, clothe it in words, and bid it clasp his form in <coughs> intercession. Bend thy soul in prayer, and like a suppliant in some gorgeous fane, let the will kneel within thy haughty heart for benefits, and meek and meek submission tame the fiercest and the mightiest. So what Mercury is saying is, it's awful what I have to do. It's awful what I see you suffering. When I go back to heaven, it seems hell to me after I see your form. Mercury pities Prometheus. He really cares. This is typical of Shelley, that only the actual supernatural creatures, like the Furies, creatures who are not in some sense anything but um, the spiritual equivalent of animals rather than the spiritual equivalent of humans, which is what the gods are. Only those creatures are interested in actually causing Prometheus pain. Anyone capable of thought, any being in the universe capable of thought, except for Jupiter, is on Prometheus's side. And even though they don't have Prometheus's courage, and they do Jupiter's bidding, as Mercury is doing here, um, they, are, they really don't want to be. And so what you have here is cowardice on Mercury's part. That is, what he says is, you can't beat him. He's destroying you. The pain you're undergoing will never end. What you should do is supplicate him, and that will make him stop torturing you. I really wish you would do that. So Mercury is unable to take how much torture Prometheus is undergoing. And he wants Prometheus to bend and to kneel to Jupiter, not because he's on Jupiter's side, but because he's on Prometheus's side. But on Prometheus's side as a human being, rather than on Prometheus's side in a war against the kingdom of heaven, against the kingdom of Jupiter. He says, you've lost. Please stop suffering so much. Um, beg for a commutation of your sentence. But he really cares. Um, he really wants Prometheus not to be suffering. The Furies don't. They do want him to suffer. They like his suffering. That goes back to Greek tragedy, by the way. Do people know the story of, of um, what happens on the Oresteia, the Agamemnon, um, the um, libation bearers, and the Eumenides? You know the story? Um. Give the very fast pl plot summary. Um, so, does it begin with Agamemnon coming home? Yeah, Agamemnon okay. comes home. So Agamemnon comes home from the Trojan War. War, and then when he gets there, um, Clytemnestra, um, for revenge for him, him sacrificing Iphigenia, their, their daughter, to sail to Troy, then she kills him, and then Orestes takes revenge by killing her and just as her lover and um, and then it's about 
like whether Orestes should be punished for killing his mother because it was on um, Apollo's orders, uh, but um, or at least under Apollo's protection, right? And then <laughs> and then yes, okay. So the so. Um, the situation Orestes finds himself in, which is, again, typical of Greek tragedy. I mean, the, the more of a context in Greek tragedy you have, the better. And Aeschylus especially, the greatest of the Greek tragedians and the hardest of them. Um, so what happens in the Oresteia, which is a trilogy that does survive, uh, Prometheus, the Prometheus trilogy, only one of the three plays survives, as I said before, Prometheus Bound, which is an amazing play. Um, also an almost impossible to perform play. Um, people are amazed that it was actually performed because Prometheus um, is bound for the entire two hours, doesn't move, um, is bound on stage, unable to move while he speaks his lines. Um, but what happens in the Oresteia is um, because Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, their son, Orestes, finds himself in an impossible situation, which is what tragedy loves, impossible situations. Um, the impossible situation is he is bound by every law of kinship to revenge the murder of his father. Um, someone murders your father, you have to do something about it. We know this from Hamlet. We know this from um, countless plays, countless tragedies. Um, pan-culturally. Um, so he is bound by all the laws of kinship to avenge his father's murder. And he's also bound by all the laws of kinship not to kill a parent. Because the crime, the murder of his father, the only revenge for that crime is the execution of his mother. So the crime and its revenge is utterly a repetition of the crime. If he kills his mother, he has done the very thing that he is punishing her for doing, which is killing his father. Um, that is to say, killing her husband. And in a sense, what he's doing is worse, because killing your husband, you're not killing a blood relation. Um, killing your mother, you are. He's blood relation to both, but they're not blood relations to each other. Just a little biology for you about how parents and children work. Um, so Orestes is in this impossible situation. And um, the situation is what it is because Clytemnestra has killed his father because, she, because he, Agamemnon, has killed their daughter. So it's also a mirror reversal of what had happened in the previous beat of the unfolding of Greek tragedy, of the tragedy of the house of Atreus. Agamemnon had sacrificed Iphigenia in order to be able to fight the Trojan War. And there are a lot of, there are Euripides plays about this sacrifice. Um, written later, but the stories, of course, are earlier. So Orestes does kill his mother. Um, and in doing so, he is um, now um, open to the furious revenge of the Furies. Now, the Furies in Greek tragedy or in Greek mythology 
are revenging demons, hellhounds, um, figures who will tear to pieces anyone that they're allowed to tear to pieces, um, and they're allowed to t tear the evil to pieces. So the Furies want Orestes because he has killed his mother. They demand Orestes's blood. They are often called, in the third play of the Oresteia is known, that the title is the Eumenides, which literally means the kindly ones. If any of you know the Jonathan Littell novel about um, a, a guard at Auschwitz, um, that novel is called The Kindly Ones, and he's talking about, that title refers to um, guards at the death camps, The Kindly Ones. Why are they called the kindly ones? That's known as um, an apotropaic gesture. Um, that is to say, if you call them the kindly ones, it's a way of not drawing attention to the fact that any human being would despise them because they're so horrible and horrifying and so full of hatred for human beings and so filled with bloodlust. So it's basically a way of knocking wood is calling them the kindly ones, which is not what anyone thinks they are. They're the Furies or the um, Arenaries. So Orestes now has a claim to make, and there's a trial. The claim that he has to make is, I did what I had to do, what every law of kinship required me to do, which was to kill the murderer of my father. And those... The Furies have a claim to make, which is you did what every law of kinship prohibits as the worst thing you can possibly do, which is to kill your mother. So had he not killed her, he would have done the worst thing he could do, which is let his father's murder go unavenged. By killing her, he does the other worst thing he could do, the equally worst thing he could do, which is to kill his own mother. So that's the situation of Orestes. Um, there's nothing he can do about it. He takes sanctuary in a temple, but um, he can't stay there forever. So there's a trial, and the trial is um, presided over by Athena. And the jury of 12 people in this trial, there's a jury of 12. Um, the idea of a jury of 12 goes way, way back. The jury of 12 people are 12 people from this tiny little unheard of, no one knows where it is or what it is town called Athens. And so the 12 men of Athens um, listen to the arguments on both sides. And then they deliver a verdict. And the verdict is split 6-6. So the trial is between the Furies on the one hand, who demand that they be able to tear Orestes apart, and um, Orestes, on the other hand, with Athena um, pretty much on his side, on the other hand, who said he had to do it. And so in the Eumenides, in the last play of the trilogy, there's a trial. The jury splits 6-6. Six, six, and because it's split 6-6, six, six, Athena casts the deciding vote. So she votes to acquit Orestes. And the Furies, of course, are furious. But she makes a deal with them, which is that they can now become the patron spirits of Athens. And the Athenians will respect them, and they will respect the Athenians, 
and they will protect the Athenians from their enemies. And um, in order to show that she really means this, she will name Athens after herself. It will now be called Athens, which it wasn't before. After Athena, it will be her city, and they will be her tutelary deities. So what Aeschylus does is he, t he um, writes this play, which is about, to some extent, taming the Furies, but taming them by offering them um, a certain kind of power, which is the power they've always wanted. Um, so here are the Furies in Prometheus Unbound. They want to tear Prometheus apart. Um, Mercury can't stand what it is that they want to do to Prometheus. But Prometheus um, is indifferent to it. Um, and Mercury is really upset by Prometheus's indifference. Now, um, what is worth going back to before that? Um, so in the little plot summary we were doing, we had Prometheus give some backstory, then Mercury comes and says, give it up. Um, I feel sorry for you, um, but really give it up. Um, what happens before that, between those two moments? Remember Prometheus <clears throat> calls upon the voices from the mountains, the springs, the air, and the whirlwinds? They summon the phantom of, the, they summon the phantom of, Jupiter. of Jupiter. Yeah. And what were you going to say, Courtney? And that also the earth And the earth speaks. And who's the earth? I know she's the earth, but who, who is she when she's at home, as the Irish like to say? Um, who, um, what's her relation to Prometheus? Mother. Mother, yeah. Um, in Greek mythology, Gaia, um, but here simply Mother Earth. Um, and um, I think... You know what? I think it's worth to get some sense of Earth. Let's look at the poem, which you will have in your book, but again, I won't know what um, page. Oh, do I have it in my book? Um, that's not so good. Look for, well, maybe I don't. Um, I did. This book is a little bit tattered. I don't know if you noticed. Um, look for in the index lines written on hearing the news of the death of Napoleon. Um, or look as um, the first line of that poem What alive and so bold, O earth? Do you have that? Written on hearing the news. Yes, oh, written on. Okay, what page is that? 465. 465, so it should be somewhere. Oh, you have the older one? Yeah, I think we do. Um, yes, so Napoleon died in um, 1821, um, and Napoleon was the, remember Byron calls him, called himself the Napoleon of Rhyme? Um, Napoleon was as major a figure in people's political imagination <coughs> as you can possibly imagine. 
That is, Napoleon, there, there hasn't been anyone since um, Hitler and Stalin who have been as commanding a figure as the most, sort of the most important person in the world as Napoleon felt um, to everyone in Europe and lots of people in, in America um, in between 1804 and 1812 at the least, but really up to 1816 or 1817 to Waterloo. So the death of Napoleon um, was the most shocking imaginable thing. It was like hearing about the death of Hitler or the death of Stalin. Not that he was as bad as Hitler and Stalin, although he wasn't really, he didn't turn out to be such a good guy. Um, but he was the figure who just overshadowed the entire political world. Everything, all worries. He was the sum of everyone's worry or everyone's hope or everyone's fear or everyone's delight. He started out as a great liberator. Um, and then turned into um, a tyrant himself. Um, that um, trajectory from liberator to tyrant is something that Shelley is obsessed with, how often that happens, that liberators turn into tyrants. Um, you know, the latest relatively minor league version of this is the death of Hugo Chavez, um, who also might be thought of as um, a kind of Napoleon of Venezuela, um, a liberator turned tyrant. Um, but so Napoleon died in exile. He lost, now he died. Um, the death of Osama bin Laden, however uh, major news that was, um, if you remember it when you got that news, is as nothing compared to the death of Napoleon. So he hears that Napoleon is dead and he writes this poem. and. Um, the way he's talking about Earth here is not unlike the way he talks about Earth in Prometheus Unbound. So, what, alive and so bold, O Earth? He turns to the Earth and addresses her. Are you alive and still bold? What, alive and so bold, O Earth? Art thou not overbold? What, leapest thou forth as of old in the light of thy morning mirth? the last of the flock of the starry fold. Ha! Leapest thou forth as of old? Are not the limbs still when the ghost is fled? And canst thou move Napoleon being dead? So Napoleon, he says, is the soul of the earth, the ghost of the earth. When the ghost, when people give up the ghost, everyone know that um, expression? What that means is their souls have left, their spirits have left. Doesn't mean, oh no, a ghost. It means the ghost is the spiritual part of you. Um, so the ghost has fled. Napoleon is dead, but the earth is still alive. How can that be? The earth is still moving, even though its spirit, its soul, its animating intelligence, the thing that controlled the earth, the way our minds control our bodies, is gone. Are not, are not the limbs still when the ghost has fled? And canst thou move? Napoleon being dead? How is not thy quick heart cold? What spark is alive on thy hearth? How is not his death knell knolled, and livest thou still, Mother Earth? Thou wert warming thy fingers cold, or the old or the embers covered in cold, 
of that most fiery spirit when it fled. What mother do you laugh? Now he is dead? So he can't believe that life is going on. Napoleon is dead, and he addresses Mother Earth, and she replies, Who has known me of old, replied Earth, or who has my story told? It is thou who art over bold. And the lightning of scorn laughed forth as she sung, To my bosom I fold all my sons when their knell is knolled. So again, here, think of Napoleon is now a son of the earth. And the earth in Prometheus Unbound is going to say something similar. Earth shall be the last embrace of her who folding her son to her bosom um, like a mother, I'm not getting this quite right, um, like a mother folding her son to her bosom says, leave me not again. As she sang to my bosom, I fold all my sons when their knell is knolled. And so with living motion all are fed, and the quick spring like weeds out of the dead. That is, all my sons die, even Napoleon, even Prometheus. And then new births like weeds, like plants, come out of the decay of the old. Everything turns into earth, and from earth grows more life. Still alive and still bold, shouted Earth. I grow bolder and still more bold. The dead fill me ten thousand fold, fuller of speed and splendor and mirth. I was cloudy and sullen and cold, like a frozen chaos uprolled, till by the spirit of the mighty dead my heart grew warm. I feed on whom I fed. So the dead died. And she, yeah, good expression. <laughs> And she feeds on whom she fed. He's got to be thinking here also of Hamlet. That is of the graveyard scene in Hamlet. Um, and other moments in Hamlet, but especially the graveyard scene. Um, Hamlet asks Horatio, couldn't it be that Alexander is now being used um, to stop um, a, a um, barrel of beer um, because he turns into earth? Or, could, or what about how a king can make a progress through the guts of a beggar because a king dies and a worm eats it, eats him. And then that worm is used by a fisherman to catch a fish, which he then eats. And there the king goes through the guts of a beggar, says Hamlet. So those are the kinds of um, Shakespearean moments that Shelley particularly relished. Um, I, alive and still bold, muttered Earth, Napoleon's fierce spirit rolled in terror and blood and gold, a torrent of ruin to death from his birth. Leave the millions who followed to mold the metal before it be cold and weave into his shame, which, like the dead, shrouds me the hopes that from his glory fled. So that, so that Napoleon produced all these great hopes when he was a liberator, which is how he started. He started as um, the champion of and the exporter of the revolutionary spirit from France. Um, the liberation of Italy, for example. Um, how do, what, do, what do people in Milan think of Napoleon? That he wasn't 
that he wasn't in Braden. That he was or wasn't? He wasn't. He wasn't. Because um, at the beginning, um, uh, Italians thought that uh, he would actually bring uh -huh. But then Ian signed up um, uh, that mm, track of Campo Formio, and yeah. um, so that uh, it was longer he was given the Austrians. And right. And <laughs> yeah, and he set up <laughs> his brother as king of Italy, and yeah. And was like a traitor. Yeah. So. Yeah. So in 1798 or so, he was greeted as the great liberator of Italy. And um, you know it's an amazing thing, but then he became emperor. So all all the things that looked like he was a champion of freedom, he then became a champion of oppression. So the hopes that Shelley is talking about here, um, that um, the hopes that from his glory fled, those are the hopes that he awakened, but then drove away. Now, one reason to point to this poem, one reason to point to it is to point to its incredible prosody. Um, What's the rhyme scheme? Keep going. Where's the D? Um, where's the C? What's the C rhyme? There are only three rhymes in the poem. Okay, C, C, and then B, A, B, A. There are only three different rhyme sounds in the entire poem. It's 40 lines long, and the rhymes are old, earth, and ed. Right? Earth, bold, fold, mirth, cold, uprolled, dead, fed, earth, rolled, gold, birth, mold, cold, dead, fled. Those are the last two stanzas. So that's part of, that's, that's, um, part of Shelley's incredible prosody, that you, he could write this 40-line poem, and you guys didn't notice how scant the number of different rhymes were here. Um, and that's <coughs> partly because of the incredible energy of his poems. That is, that, that there's a kind of hammer blow of rhymes here. And that, but the hammer blow is, gives you the energy of the poem, which is exactly the kind of energy that um, Napoleon and now that Earth are opposing each other with. Um, it's really, Shelley is, um, for my money, far and away the greatest of technical poets among the Romantics. Um, Byron's technique was amazing, but Shelley's more so. Um, and um, his technical powers are not only that he could do these incredible things with rhyme and meter and so on, um, which we'll see in spades when we get to the triumph of life, um, but that what he does with rhyme and meter is absolutely appropriate to what he's saying. That is, the hammer blows here, the sense of things building up, of the speaker asking Earth this question and Earth exploding in her answer. The pressure that builds up 
so that Earth's explosion makes sense. Who has known me of old, replied Earth, or who has my story told? It is thou who art overbold. Um, that's coming from the prosody as well. The feel of Shelley's poem um, is not only in its content and vocabulary, but in its in the technical aspects of its form, or in, or is it in his incredible technical skill, and that's that's really something to notice. Um, Earth here is in some ways like, in some ways not like the Earth of Prometheus Unbound. But the crucial reason that he's returning to um, the spirit of Earth or to the figure of Earth as he's been describing her in Prometheus Unbound is that um, the story of Napoleon is a story that Shelley is always worried about which is the story of how liberators become tyrants. That liberation leads to tyranny. And there are many possible reasons that liberation might lead to tyranny, but the main one for Shelley is um, what Byron said in that note to um, uh, the story um, in, in um, Don Juan of Haiti and her father, that those who had been slaves and those who had been um, oppressed, when they get power, they respond in kind. That slavery and oppression not only causes pain and torture and horror to, to its victims, but it also distorts them as human beings, as minds, as souls, so that if they get power, it's the same way that child abusers were almost always abused as children. That is, you know, there's nothing worse than a child abuser. And you just feel so much for children who have been abused. But the child abusers were such children. Um, and that dynamic is something that Shelley is always seeing at work in politics, that those who become free after long oppression don't handle their freedom well, but risk, very strongly risk, becoming oppressors in their turn. And that's the issue from the start in Prometheus Unbound. From the start, it feels, and, and, and the way that, that, the word for that is revenge. That is doing unto others what they did unto you. The opposite of doing unto others what you wish they would do unto you. This is doing unto others what they did unto you. And if they caused you misery, then those who have been oppressed will cause misery in their turn when they get power. Napoleon for Shelley is an example of liberation turning into tyranny, of the, the champion of liberty turning into a champion of tyranny. We actually saw the first day of class that that's what he says about Wordsworth. Now, he doesn't actually see Wordsworth as a tyrant, but he does see Wordsworth, as, as Byron does, as a brown noser, as someone who had been, as he puts it in, in that poem to Wordsworth, in honored poverty, had sung songs consecrate to liberty. But now, having been thus 
once. He has ceased to be that. that. Remember, that's the last line of that sonnet, that having been thus once that thou should cease to be, um, because now he's on the side of the oppressors. He's achieved some freedom, and um, he's become an oppressor himself. And that, for Shelley, is a horrendous danger to and in the human spirit, that possibility that the oppressed will become oppressors in their turn. So here is Prometheus, who it seems wants to do to Jupiter what Jupiter has done to him. But now at the very beginning of the play, he says, I can't remember my curse. The very fact that he cursed Jupiter is the sign of the possibility that he will become an oppressor. Anyone who curses might become an oppressor. But now he wants to recall, as in remember, but also to recall, as in to revoke his curse. Um, so now the voices explain what happened, um, all these terrible things that happened. And um, Prometheus, this is at line 112, says, I hear a sound of voices, not the voice which I gave forth. So he said something, and the voices from the mountains and the winds and the springs and the whirlwinds answered him, and he hears them. And the earth speaks, the tongueless caverns of the craggy hills, line 107, cried misery. Then the hollow heaven replied, misery, and the ocean's purple waves climbing the land howled to the lashing winds, and the pale nations heard it. Misery. And then Prometheus hears her voice. I hear a sound of voices, not the voice which I gave forth. Mother, that is earth, mother, thy sons and thou scorn him without whose all-enduring will beneath the fierce omnipotence of Jove, both they and thou had vanished like thin mist unrolled on the morning wind. Know ye not me, the titan, he who made his agony the barrier to your else all-conquering foe. So I protected you all. Um, don't you know who I am? Jupiter would have destroyed the earth, except that he needs to know what I have to tell him. Um, so he calls in a kind of soliloquy on his mother, and he says, Why answer ye not still, brethren? The earth says, They dare not. No one dares. That's going to be true of Mercury as well. You alone dare to stand up against God. No one else dares. Who dares? For I would hear that curse again, that is, recall it as in hear it again. Ah, what an awful whisper rises up to scarce like sound. It tingles through the frame as lightning tingles, hovering ere it strike. Speak, spirit, from thine inorganic voice. I only know that thou art moving near and love. How cursed I him. So the earth is the inorganic being whose voice he now hears. And he asks her, what did I say 3,000 years ago? And the earth answers, how canst thou hear who knowest not the language of the dead? So that's an amazing moment. She's about to say that there are two worlds, the worlds of the living and the dead. And the immortals cannot understand the language of mortals. That is the language of the dead. Um, only the dead, or possibly those who will die, can understand that other language. 
that's a really intense idea. Not an, oh yeah, whatever idea. Um, not an, so that's good that they have this language that the immortals don't know. But a really intense idea that they're, that gods, that the omnipotent and omniscient beings in the universe don't know what the language that mortal beings speak to each other, what that language says. That somehow the language of the dead is a language unavailable to the omniscient. What language would that be? <coughs> if you're Shelley, not if you're Prometheus, not if you're Earth, but if you're Shelley, what language would the omniscient not understand? A way of asking this is to ask, what experience could a god not have? I know it's a weird question, but yeah. Death. Death. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, a god can't have the experience of death, although Jesus dies. Um, and that is actually important to Prometheus Unbound, that he does. Um, did people see where he comes up? Not by name, but by description. Do you remember where? Not specifically. Okay. Um, Tony, what were you going to say? Um, maybe in contrast to the fear of death more the thrill of being alive. Okay. Um, the flip side of the fear of death is the thrill of being alive. Um, a thrill maybe gods can't have because for them it goes without saying. Okay, yeah. Were you going to say something, Barbara? Okay, yeah. Suffering. Suffering. The experience of suffering. Although Prometheus suffers, but maybe um, that means he does understand the language of the dead. There's an argument, I think, to my mind, a somewhat silly argument, um, but an argument in the interpretation of Prometheus Unbound, whether Prometheus actually hears what Earth is saying to him, whether if you were <coughs> acting this out, it wouldn't be... Oh, so here's a spoiler alert. Um, how many people have seen Sixth Sense or know about it? How many people don't know about it? Um, not at all? So you don't know the amazing twist? I don't know. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's not okay. It's such a great movie. Okay. I don't want to ruin this part of your life. It is really good. It's really a great movie. His other movies are not. <laughs> but, it's so disappointing. Yeah, they really are. They all are. He tried, he tried to, re, you know, he keeps wanting to do the same thing. Yeah. And there's only one good way to do it, and he did it in the first one. Um, <sighs> all right, close your ears. <laughs> no, you don't have to. There are conversations in Sixth Sense that turn out not to be conversations. Um, that's the best way to put it, without spoiling too much. Um, that is, you believe that people are hearing each other, but they're not. Um, if you know um, Silence of the Lambs, this is a trivial version of the same thing, but the famous thing that happens in Silence of the Lambs, have people seen it? So the famous thing that happens is that we get shots from inside a house where Clarice Starling is about to confront um, Billy Rubin. Um, and outside the house where the FBI has surrounded the house, and we know that she's going to be in trouble because she has no idea what she's about to find out. But we also think, well, thank goodness that outside, you know, help is not far away. And we cut back and forth from inside and outside the house for, you know, the really intense 
last 15 minutes or so of the movie. Um, but then it turns out that the FBI is outside a different house. That is, we'd assumed that we're cutting back and forth between, that, we're, that there's only one house at issue, um, and that they're right outside, just, just on the other side of the wall. But we're wrong. They're in a totally different part of town because they've been misled. Um, so discovering that we're wrong that way, that's a powerful, um, that's a powerful trick. Um, Sixth Sense does that trick, but in a much better way, even, than Silence of the Lambs. Um, so that's all I'll say. You should rent it. Vacation is coming. Just really, it's so good. Actually, it's hard to rent, though, I think. I think it's actually pretty hard to get. You know what? Brandeis has it, though. Um, I'm pretty sure the library has it. You should take it out and watch it. And you haven't seen it either, right? <laughs> the two of you should watch it together. Everyone else has seen it? Have you seen it? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. So yeah, but just you should. Um, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so, um, some people think that uh, that the conversation between Prometheus and Earth is like that. That is, that Earth is speaking, but Prometheus doesn't hear, and that therefore we who are mortals can know what the uncommunicating dead are saying, um, but Prometheus can't. I don't think that can be right, um, but I think that there's, um, it's at least worth considering as far as the weirdness of this conversation goes. So um, the earth says, how canst thou hear who knowest not the language of the dead? Prometheus, thou art a living spirit, speak as they, speak as the living, um, not the dead, the immortals speak. And earth says, no, I dare not speak like life lest heaven's fell king should hear and link me to some wheel of pain more torturing than the one whereon I roll. So earth is still alive and still bold and rolling, but even rolling around the sun or rolling between day and night, earth is describing as being on a Catherine wheel, being broken to the wheel. Subtle thou art and good, and though the gods hear not this voice, yet thou art more than God being wise and kind. Earnestly hearken now. Now, I actually think that proves that Prometheus can understand. She's saying, um, the gods can't hear my voice, but you are more than God, which means you can hear what mortals have to say, what the language of the dead can say. And Prometheus says, well, I hear something obscurely through my brain like shadows dim, sweep awful thoughts, rapid and thick. I feel faint, like one mingled in entwining love, yet tis not pleasure. And the earth says, no, you, you're not hearing me. No, thou canst not hear. Thou art immortal, and this tongue is known only to those who die. But Prometheus does seem to hear. And what art thou, O melancholy voice? And then she identifies herself. I am the earth, thy mother. She within whose stony veins to the last fiber of the loftiest tree whose thin leaves trembled in the frozen air, joy ran as blood within a living frame when thou didst from her bosom like a cloud of glory arise a spirit of keen joy. So when you were born, everything on earth, everything which I am, thrilled with joy through my stony veins. 
and at thy voice her pining sons uplifted their prostrate brows from the polluting dust, and our almighty tyrant, that is Jupiter, the tyrant with fierce dread grew pale until his thunder chained thee here. So here's the backstory. Then, see those million worlds which burn and roll around us. Their inhabitants beheld my sphere of light wane in wide heaven. So all the inhabitants of other planets saw my light eclipsed, saw me um, wane like the moon when Jupiter imprisoned you. The sea was lifted by strange tempests, and new fire from earthquake-rifted mountain of bright snow shook its portentous hair beneath heaven's frown. Lightning and inundation vexed the plains. Blue thistles bloomed in cities. Foodless toads within voluptuous chambers panting crawled when plague had fallen on man and beast and worm and famine and black blight on herb and tree and in the corn and vines and meadow grass teemed ineradicable poisonous weeds draining their growth for my wan breast was dry with grief and the thin air my breath was stained with the contagion of a mother's hate breathed on her child's destroyer so earth prometheus's mother prometheus is imprisoned and tortured and she is full of hatred for jupiter the contagion of a mother's hate that's one reason there's plague everywhere so what we're getting here is a kind of mythological history of why things are so hard on Earth, why there's disease, why there's earthquake, why there are poisonous plants and poisonous animals. This is all Earth's grief over and bitterness over what Jupiter has done to Prometheus. I, I heard thy curse, the which, if thou rememberest not, yet my innumerable seas and streams, mountains and caves and winds and yon wide air and the inarticulate people of the dead preserve a treasured spell. So his curse is what all the oppressed hang on to and treasure as what they will use against the oppressor. We meditate in secret joy and hope those dreadful words but dare not speak them. So he wants to hear his curse, recall it, but they won't speak it. Prometheus, <coughs> venerable mother, all else who live and suffer take from thee some comfort. Flowers and fruits and happy sounds and love, though fleeting, these may not be mine, but mine own words I pray deny me not. So you still give joy to living things, but not to me, but don't deny me my words. And then she has this famous reply. They shall be told. Okay, I'll tell you your words. Ere Babylon was dust, the Magus Zoroaster, my dead child, met his own image walking in the garden. So here's a little story about something that happened to Zoroaster, the founder of Zoroastrianism. Um, the prophet magician Zoroaster met his own image walking in the garden. Now who is Zoroaster? He's dead. Another child of Earth's who's died. The Magus Zoroaster, my dead child, met his own image walking in the garden. That apparition, soul of man, he saw. No one else saw him meet his image, but he did. That apparition, soul of man, he saw. For know there are two worlds of life and death. One 
that which thou beholdest. Remember in Mont Blanc when Shelley wonders if he's asleep, if what he's seeing is the world of sleep or even of death rolling its circles around him? No, there are two worlds of life and death. One, that which shall behold us, but the other is underneath the grave where do inhabit the shadows of all forms that think and live till death unite them and they part no more. So under the earth are the shadows of all living things and when you die you get united with your shadow in the realm of death under the grave. Dreams and the light imaginings of men and all that faith creates or love desires, terrible, strange, sublime, and beauteous shapes, they're all there. There thou art, and dost hang, a writhing shade mid whirlwind people mountains. All the gods are there, and all the powers of nameless worlds, vast scepters, phantoms, heroes, men, and beasts, and Demogorgon, a tremendous gloom. So Demogorgon is a being who actually is the product of a misprint. Um, he is, was thought to be some huge figure of fate. Um, it's a misprint for the um, platonic word demiurge, um, but he came into being as a misprint or a miscopying of the word demiurge in Plato's Timaeus. Um, he's going to be a character in Prometheus Unbound. Demogorgon, the spirit of fate, a tremendous gloom, and he, the supreme tyrant, all of these are shades underground, on his throne of burning gold, sun, one of these shall utter the curse which all remember. So one of the dead shadows of the immortal beings will do it. Call it will thine own ghost, like Zoroaster did. I mean, just feel how amazing this, this conception is that Shelley gives you here that you can meet your dead self or the dead selves of other living beings and you can conjure them. Call it will thine own ghost or the ghost of Jupiter, Hades, or Typhon, or what mightier gods from all prolific evil since thy ruin have sprung. So since you've been ruined, evil has caused all these gods to be born and trampled on my prostrate sons. They've all trampled on my children. Ask and they must reply, so the revenge of the supreme may sweep through vacant shades as raining wind through the abandoned gate of a fallen palace. So if you ask, they'll reply. We can, you can hear the revenge, and it will sweep through these vacant shades, these shadows of the dead, as raining wind through the abandoned gate of a fallen palace. That's what the shadows of the dead are. They're like the abandoned gates of a fallen palace. Um, and then Prometheus's reply is now to revoke the curse, to begin its revocation. Mother, let not aught of that which may be evil pass again my lips or those of aught resembling me. That curse is evil. He doesn't want to say it again. He doesn't want his shade to say it. Therefore, he picks Jupiter. Phantasm of Jupiter, arise, appear, which he will do um, shortly. Um, all right, reread the whole play. <laughs> Read and then reread the whole play, mindful of how much of it will be on the final, because it's just so great.
I mean, everything we're reading is so great. And, but everything we're reading needs um, the kind of attention that no one can pay on the first reading. Um, these are works that just get greater the more you reread them. So reread them. Okay, have a good break. Watch Sixth Sense. And uh, yes, I do. Thank you. I like the theories community they just in person for the UTC Brood Show. We just did a section about the theories. Oh, really? Good. Um, so 